Yeah, I mean, absolutely, absolutely right. The more vulnerable, the more easily to exploit, and so there is a there is a gender bias there, and uh, and children are are exploited also at disproportionate rates. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with International Justice Mission. Thank you to Philip Calvert and his team for the incredible work they do to bring awareness to the global problem of modern day slavery. I'm proud to share with my audience that I have formalized my relationship with IGMs for becoming one of their Canadian ambassadors. Why? Because I believe we can end slavery in our lifetime, and I want to use my platform to be part of that mission. For many of you, hearing that statement may be a rallying cry. For the rest, it may be a moment of, wait, what? Slavery? Is that even a thing? For me, up to 12 to 18 months ago, it was the second. I did not even understand the problem or that it existed at the scale that it does. Currently, there are over 40 million people affected by modern-day slavery. 40 million people. After a chance meeting with Philip Calvert, National Director of Development for IGM Canada, my eyes were open to the reality that poor people face the world over, a reality of violence that stops them from ever moving forward in their life. At first, this made me uncomfortable. Then it made me downright mad. But then it gave me hope. It is support of groups like IGM that will allow us to reach the goal of any slavery in our lifetime and give hope to people who may have none. I know this can be an uncomfortable conversation, and that is okay. That's why we're going to go on this journey together. Stay tuned as we host guests from IGM who will help educate us as well as upcoming events that, where we can meet the amazing people that make the work they do a reality. Please join me in supporting this incredible organization by visiting and donating to their cause at www.igm.ca. We will only succeed in any slavery in our lifetime if we work together to make a difference. Hello and a warm Collisions YYC. Welcome to Mr. Andre Sachenko. How are you, Andre? I'm just fine. Thanks so much. I'm wishing you uh, good evening. You're wishing me good morning. You are my first official guest uh, from the other side of the world. You are uh, calling in from Bangkok this morning. Uh, so so welcome. How uh, hot and steamy day. I've been in Bangkok a couple times, and it was unbearingly hot both times I was there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's uncomfortably humid, even as we speak, uh, uh, but uh, fans and, and air conditioning do wonder. Yes. How long have you been in Bangkok for? Five years. Do you get used to the hot and humid, or are, are you a, are you a guy that I can do. handle hot and humid? <laughs> oh my gosh, no! I'm a sweaty mess everywhere I go, but uh, <laughs> but you know you kind of just uh, do get used to that. I mean, uh, there's a there's a certain sense of uh, uh, just being used to kind of being acceptance, maybe acceptance. Uh, <laughs> Something like that. Yes, I, I appreciate that. Hot and humid is hard, especially for a lot of my audience from Western Canada. It, sometimes it's 60% humidity and people be like, oh, it's so humid today. I'm like, um, what? Not really, but it's all, re it's all relevant. So anyways, enough about the weather. It's my mandatory, I think it's my Canadian DNA. I got to talk about the weather for 30 seconds at least. Regional Vice President, Forced Labor Programs, Asia Pacific. As many of my audience know, I've had the opportunity, the privilege, the honor to be working very closely with International Justice Mission and their Canada team to help share the message around ending slavery in our lifetime. And part of my journey is also having conversations with individuals like yourself who work with International Justice Mission around the world. So maybe let's just start with that. Give us a little bit of, you know, you've been, I know with IGM for many, many years, I think 18 years plus. So let's just start and kind of set the stage for our audience of the role you've, you play currently with IGM and a little bit, you know, without going all the way into the details, but a little bit of your history with your organization. Yeah, uh, thanks so much, Tyler. I, you know, I, um I lead IJM's teams in Southeast Asia working on forced labor issues. So we're trying to end forced labor for the most vulnerable workers in uh, the countries where we're at in Southeast Asia. And, and that's Thailand, um, Myanmar, Cambodia, Malaysia, uh, and Indonesia. And um, so we're trying to show that uh, when laws are enforced to protect uh, the most vulnerable workers, then 
the violence really reduces and forced labor situations uh, are drastically reduced. And so, I mean, that's what I'm doing now. Um, prior to this, I was working in uh, South India uh, with our teams there. And prior to that in the Philippines and prior to that in Northern Thailand, that's where I started with IJM uh, 18 years ago. Very interesting. What a, I can only imagine the journey and the stories. Just again, I, I never like to leave anything unexplained. When you say most vulnerable workers, can you give us a little bit of context of kind of what you're referring to and like what would fall underneath that categorization specifically? Yeah, great question. So it, mostly talking about workers in poverty. Uh, we do find that the people who are least able to access the the benefits of protection, uh, and mostly we're talking about protection by government authorities, the people who are least able to access that are uh, people in poverty. Um, and, uh, and another category that we're looking at are migrant workers, so people who are working outside their uh, home country context. And uh, actually a significant number of the workers in, in poverty and the most vulnerable workers in Southeast Asia are actually migrant workers. Interesting. Is that being, is that also just, is that a phenomenon as old as time? Or are we also, I certainly understand we've got more environmental impact, we've got more conflict impact that are driving people to try to find better or to find work, which is what I've read or certainly through working with IGM has, is starting to just, it's only amplifying this the quote unquote problem. Yeah, I mean, absolutely right. So, you know, as you say, people have been, people have been looking for a, a better life and trying to migrate for work for uh, as old as time. H having said that, uh, there's a lot of displacement going on these days, and uh, and people are finding ways, I think, through technology to, to know and understand uh, opportunities that may be at present uh, farther away, right? And so recruiting can happen over a Facebook ad today, uh, and so people can uh, sort of jump at what they think is a great opportunity, uh, and it turns out uh, all too often to be too good to be true. Taking advantage and preying upon people's, you know, looking for a better life. I like how you said that, or looking for a better, you know, raising their station or looking for something different. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the industries. Like again, learning. I've learned about the fishing industry. I've learned. I think we've all in North America been maybe more exposed to the textile industry and understanding where some of those things have been in the news the last even five years. What are some of the industries where you see the most prevalent? Uh, I guess I'm say abuses of of people's human rights in this yeah. way. Yeah, so uh, it's, it's predominantly industries where uh, we're talking about low-skill um, low workers, typically. Uh, workers who um, are uh, less educated, maybe um, less able to uh, have confidence to access outside supports to protect them. Uh, where, uh, that's where the vulnerability is the highest. And so um, those kind of industries are uh, agriculture, uh, as you said, fishing, uh, so it could be different kinds of plantation type work. Uh, can also be factories, uh, definitely. Uh, that's where you're talking about textiles. Um, and then another one in the region is uh, domestic work, actually, like house uh, household help. Um, that's a sector that's unregulated, and uh, many people who get into uh, migrant worker jobs in another country as a household helper. Uh, many women find themselves in real slave-like situations there. Interesting. Low-skill, low often often where people are just trying to get any type of revenue or income, or like you said, the, but the low-skill where it's very easy to take advantage. And something that you, that you mentioned, which I'm learning more and more, that is so easy to take, again, I'm going to 
I live in North America. Oh, the police, oh, you know, they pulled me over. They gave me a ticket, you know, those things. But we have a protection force that if we have access to in a way that when you call the police and something happens, you're not expecting them to show up inside with the perpetrator of the crime or the infraction. You're typically hoping or believe that they'll look at both sides of the situation. Grumble, grumble, you got a speeding ticket or you rolled through a stop sign. But what we're really talking about is that there's an organization or a group that's there to protect your rights in the place where you can't. That falls off really quickly. And from what I'm learning to work with IGM, that is kind of the, one of the core tenants, if you will, of allowing this type of, you know, vulnerable people to be exploited. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's uh, working law enforcement is a wonderful thing. And, and there's no doubt that all around the world, including in Canada and, and the United States and everywhere else, there are abuses by law enforcement. And that uh, that's super important to, to dig that uh, down to the bottom and, and root that out. Uh, but um, to be without a functioning law enforcement system, if you're a person in uh, in a vulnerable situation, is uh, is incredibly. Uh, it's a different world from what from the ways that uh, you and I grow up, and it's a different level of consciousness about anything being able to happen to you at any time, and there being nobody out there to uh, to do anything to stop it. What a helpless, what a helpless feeling for things that we take for granted. And I think it's so important, even for my audience, to it's hard to relate to something you've never lived in. You're like, oh, what can that be like? I don't know, because I don't actually, I don't actually know that. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, obviously regional, regional vice president for labor programs, Asia Pacific. You've worked all over like different regions of the world. What I do love about IGM is their change model of going in and not, we're going to ride in, and I'm, I'm going to over-glamorize this, ride in on our white North American horse and change everything. The partnership model, the uh, alignment with local law enforcement, with local judicial system, this is not. these are not short-term fixes. So talk to us a little bit about when you show up in a new region, just a little bit of the process of, of getting connected. And I can only imagine the, 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 the outsiders coming in to change our world. That, is, that cannot be an easy process to undertake for any, anyone involved. Yeah, I mean, n nobody likes uh, to have somebody else telling them what to do, and uh, you know, the, <laughs> the 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 Canadian governments don't like that. Um, uh, the Alberta government doesn't like it. People, no, no one likes someone else coming in to say, "Hey, you know, we've got your answers, and we're going to tell you what to do here." And and, and really, that's not at all our uh, model at IJM. And uh, there's no white horse. Uh, and and uh, so what we're talking about is working with local leaders uh, to enforce the laws and make the country safer for the most vulnerable people. And, and the wonderful thing is that there are wonderful change makers and champions and advocates uh, in all the countries where we're working. And really what we're looking to do is uh, help facilitate the sharing of information and models that have worked in other places um, and, uh, and empower and lift up those uh, voices and expertise within the, the countries where we are. Of course, bringing some of the the models and expertise that we've gathered from other places, but uh, but largely on the the power and the initiative and the uh, the drive of of local people. When you first come into a region, just curious, I'm getting right down to the nuts and bolts here. What what's the decision that's made at the IGM level to come? In? Is there an invitation to come into the region? Is there an identification of this is a part of the world where this problem is accelerating or that it's moving in the wrong direction and we're choosing to go there? And when you first when you first kind of boots on the ground and you land in this in this area, like what's the what's the approach? Does it differ or is there a bit of a formula or a playbook, if you will, that IGM 
obviously IGM being an organization that's been around for many years and has worked in so many different parts of the world. Is there a playbook or is every region a little bit a fresh set of eyes and going in and and like learning, listening, talking a lot before telling and doing? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, the, the, I'll start with the the end part, right? There, there's no there's no precise playbook uh, because every story is contextual. Having said that, uh, at IJM we do have components of our model uh, that we're always going to run, and I think the most foundational one of those is we're going to get involved in specific cases. So uh, we're an organization that's going to be uh, helping specific uh, women, men, and children through uh, getting out of. Uh, exploitative situations and uh, uh, experiencing the justice system and, and uh, raising their voices through the justice system to see accountability for perpetrators. We're going to be looking for restoration long term for survivors and we're going to be looking for uh, system change to strengthen those justice systems and protect the most vulnerable. I mean, that's the, that's the long term goal of the program and the foundation of it is individual people who are fighting to make their way through the system. So we're always looking for opportunities uh, to, to fight for people in individual situations, and we're looking for partners on the ground who we can do that with, both government and uh, local civil society partners. Uh, so that's the, if there's a playbook, uh, that's the basic foundations. Um, then as to how we decide, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, we, we, we look for uh, compelling and doable uh, opportunities where there's an, a need for a stronger, uh, stronger justice system rule of law uh, that will protect people, right? And so we can learn about uh, an opportunity like that uh, most often through existing projects that we have or existing partners who are saying, hey, we're spotting a need here, uh, and this is something that, uh, based on what we see from your expertise, you might be able to add some value here. And so uh, then we, uh, then we, uh, then we do go through kind of a long. Uh, series of conversations, uh, research, conversations uh, with with all kinds of stakeholders, right? And uh, because we want to make a, a good informed decision and make sure we're not acting rashly, we want to test the, test the waters a little bit. Um, and so usually that kind of process takes a, a several years to really fully vet the opportunity and then set up a, uh, set up a strategy and a plan and then find the right people and, and then make it happen. Uh, again, normally not bringing the majority of those people from the outside, but um, making a plan and finding the right people who want to do the work. When you arrive in a community, are there certain groups that you will encounter first, like more of those advocates or the people that either have a relationship? Because again, IGM is a well-known organization. You guys have been around for quite a few years. So I'm assuming that also helps a little bit in terms of, oh, we know you or know of you. Is it community level? Is it, a, again, I'm just thinking about who's the most motivated for this to change versus who's potential, let's be honest, who's the most motivated for it to actually stay the same, the status quo, which it oftentimes are those business owners or the people that are operating and benefiting from, from this kind of, you know, negativity. Is it at the community level or do you get right involved at a government level of a government saying, Hey, we know we have a problem here. We don't like these optics. We need to change it just for us as a nation. We're looking for those. We're looking for both those connections. That's a good question. We're looking for uh, community level uh, community-level people who are interacting with real survivors of, of violence, uh, real survivors of crime. So in our case, looking for people who are, who know the stories and are already acting as champions, trying to help those uh, workers who have returned from situations of exploitation. Um, at the same time, uh, we know that in this day and age, 
reports are going public, uh, news is going uh, in the media, you know, government officials already know to some degree that this problem exists and they, uh, in most cases, have been trying to do something about it, at least some. So we're also looking for our high-level government officials of goodwill and, and those, are, those are there. Uh, and so we're looking for those introductions, we're looking to meet those people and find out if there's a partnership to be had. Um, so I think, you know, both all levels uh, and, and there are indigenous organizations that have already been uh, working in this space, uh, trying to help the most vulnerable people uh, in various ways. And so I think if there's a, a way that we can add uh, expertise that we've developed in other places to, to fuel that, uh, then I think there's a win-win-win. I appreciate that. <clears throat> you said something about there's more, um, more media, or I forget how you said it, but is this moving into a different era because now there's so much, everyone's got a camera on their phone. This isn't, it's not as maybe as easy to hide this as it once were. And I do understand we're at parts of the world where not everyone maybe has a, a cell phone in their pocket, but for a lot of parts of the world, that cell phone is the center of the community of the, its ability to connect and do banking transactions and all, and all the things like your, you know, internet truly is a, is a leveler that way. Uh, are we moving into a place where from an IGM perspective, it's, easier to find the things that are going wrong just because there is more exposure and we've got more coverage out, out there as we all are reporters from if we want to be with the devices in our hands? Yeah, 100%. Um, absolutely. We, there's examples just from the past few months where uh, major uh, forced labor abuses have been found in, uh, in factories uh, because workers were able to uh, snap video of, uh, you know, of, of uh, owners of facilities knew that an inspection was coming in and they moved all the workers from the horrible place that they were being housed to nicer quarters right and so they uh and and they uh knew that the inspectors were coming in and so they shouted out like they're coming they're coming they're coming and you know the workers are racing out of the facility and so all the stuff is on video right and uh and so and that stuff is getting uploaded and boom you know you can see um you know, you can see what's happening, and then the and then that goes uh, to high-level decision makers, and there's pressure put on the brands that are purchasing those goods, and suddenly, uh, you know, there's there's motivation for change, right? And I think that's uh, that's just one example, uh, but yeah, there. I, I love it when you, when you can't hide in the, in the in the dark corners any longer because it's been illuminated by the light on your phone. Uh, curious, you just touched on something about the brands that buy from these organizations. Obviously, you can't turn a corner now without running into ESG as, a, as an acronym that's becoming very prevalent, certainly here in Western Canada with our energy sector. And certainly the E has been a big part of that for the last, for many, many years. And the S and G, it's not that they weren't there, but they're certainly becoming a lot more top of mind. Let's just say that. I don't want to sound like, oh, this is new. It's not new. We're just now uh, shining a spotlight on it in a, in a different way and holding it uh, accountable in a different way. Is that also impacting your world when you think about, let's talk about it, North America and the goods we buy, they get produced somewhere. And because we're getting this $3 item or this $30 item that maybe should have been 40, we've got to understand the, the supply chain that allows that to facilitate so we can fill our Amazon cart. I'm sorry, not to crap on North Americans for our buying purchases, but sometimes the, the we you don't know where it came from. Is that becoming more of a factor where organizations now, because of this transparency, are having to f follow the trail all the way back to where there might be a pocket of forced labor in their supply chain? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a great thing. I think transparency initiatives are really important. Uh, a lot of consumers want to know. And, uh, and, and as I said, the... Um, 
you know, there's a, there are a lot more documentation of those human rights abuses that are happening at the lowest level. So then if there's transparency initiatives, then those dots can be connected, right? And, and, uh, and I think from our perspective, what's valuable there is just that there's incentive, uh, there's business incentive, bottom line incentive to actually uh, doing, taking additional what we call due diligence, right? To uh, uh, to work, and then that do, that the due diligence would actually go beyond just the owned operations of those individual businesses, right? That they would be looking actually at their supply chains or the value chains that get uh, that get brought into the goods that are eventually imported and sold in Canada, um, and that is valuable, you know. But I think from from our view at IJM, the most valuable kind of kind of change that would act would actually be for for brands and retailers uh, and large voices uh, of influence that are purchasing goods from those most vulnerable sourcing areas uh, to, to actually put pressure on those governments to clean up uh, what's happening across the board in those spaces, right? Uh, chain, uh, supply chain by supply chain initiatives are valuable, uh, but actually working with the governments to clean up whole jurisdictions uh, is even more, even more valuable. Well, even I've been just become aware of something through talking to some of the, the team at IGM around some legislation that's being tabled in Canada right now that would really put a lot more, you know, quote unquote, teeth into the reality of your supply chain and understanding that. And I know that there's some, there's definitely some excitement on the IGM team around like what that would do because all of a sudden there's, there's, there's now very tangible consequences for companies that are like, well, I don't know what happened at the other side of the world in, in a factory that I'm not related to, but yet that's where my products come from. And if you can't hold accountability, change doesn't always happen, right? <laughs> yeah, so, you know, the, the modern slavery legislation uh, phenomenon uh, started some years ago in, in California, and then it spread to the UK, and Australia has done something about it, and now the EU is talking about it, and it's great to see Canada jumping on that bandwagon, and it is important. And, uh, you know, once companies have to kind of do more work to map out their supply chains and find out what's going on, and then... Uh, talk about and, and submit publicly available statements about what they're doing to try to find out, uh, then I think that's a great first step, right? And there's just way more public data out there to have these sorts of conversations with businesses. Uh, it's not yet real teeth that's going to actually hit okay. the bottom line, but it's a step towards um, having more impactful conversations, right? I think the one piece of this legislation that actually potentially has some additional teeth is, is what we call the import ban component, right? So that's, okay. that's the piece that says, actually it's Canadian law that it's illegal to import any good that was made with forced or child labor. Um, and, and if you think about that, I mean, that's pretty remarkable, right? Um, there, uh, there are a lot of, uh, like you just said, uh, at, the, at some part of the supply chain of a lot of goods, there could well be uh, some components that are, or subcomponents or sub subcomponents that are made with forced labor. Thinking about that, think, uh, the impact to the bottom line and the impact to business, which we often look in shorter term and quarterly impacts and things like that. Thinking about your organization and also, as I was even thinking about this episode about yourself and your role moving into new jurisdictions to then set this up, how do you guys uh, and your, your, your team, I should say, as a, as a group look at success? Because, you know, this isn't quarter over quarter, but by this quarter, we're going to be here or we're pulling out. Like just thinking about so many business I know, businesses I've known, especially as the world shifts, expand into other jurisdictions and how important it is to take the longer term vision of what you're doing uh, for your for yourselves and even yourself and your role. I've been with the organization for 18 years. 
when you first, you know, land on the ground, boots on the ground, if you will, what are some of those timeframes or how do you look at success over such a longer, long-term horizon? So, you know, we're, we're in the, we're in the business of strengthening justice systems to protect the most vulnerable people. And that uh, strengthening justice systems takes a long time. And that change process in a community uh, really goes on. So we're, we could be talking about a decade. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it could happen a little faster. So what we do, if we're looking out over a decade, is we, we, sort of, we break that up into maybe different phases, right? And so we'll say, okay, from, for the first three years, we want to accomplish this interim objective. And then we're looking at the next phase objective. And then we're going to uh, then we're going to uh, make sure we can seal in the, the gains we've made and make them sustainable. And, and so if we can break our project up into different phases, then we'll set metrics uh, for what we think success will look like. And finally, at the end, we're looking to prove what we call protection. Uh, and for us, protection just means that uh, there's less crime, uh, that the justice system is stronger, and that the community uh, has an increased level of confidence and victims, in fact, are relying on the justice system. We say if those things are happening, okay. uh, then, in fact, there's real measurable, documented, uh, re actual real life, uh, better safety and protection for those most vulnerable people. That's certainly one thing I very much appreciate about as I get to know the organization and understand that there is a very trusted and, and, and relied upon level of metrics and measurements that are behind this model of change. It isn't, yes, it's a feel good and there we're making change, but because you guys focus on such a longer term horizon as an organization to create change, that the metrics are, uh, are so important and they, they can be looked upon to say, well, this is what it was when we started and this is what it is now. I think that's huge. And a lot of times I know for people in the giving space, that can be a gap. Like, yes, it feels good, but is there real change happening with my dollars? And I know, I think more and more in the last five or 10 years, the non-for-profit sector has been put under a lot more pressure to be accountable to their results. And I, I think that's a good thing, but I do think it's been a shift for a lot of different organizations. Mm -hmm. Well, it's hard, right? There's a finite uh, amount of dollars out there, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of people are trying to do the best they can, and they're saying, "Well, wait, am I going to spend a bunch of my am I going to spend a bunch of my time and effort and resources? I could be helping people, but now I have to measure things." And but in but in reality, uh, we mm, we, that's we a good need way to, look to be, at and it, yeah. we want to be, we want to be held accountable to what to what change we say we're making, uh, because otherwise, you know, without that accountability, uh, the space is uh, you know ripe for. Um, for people to just make bad decisions and abuse the trust that, that people are placing in them. So I think uh, it's important for integrity purposes, but actually it's, it's, it's important also for uh, the impact of the model, right? If, we're, if what we're doing is making a difference and if, if it actually is a, a key component for protecting people from violence, then if we can prove it, and if we can prove it with uh, publicly available measurable data that can be uh, criticized by critics and be talked about and uh, the data can be played around with, then then that actually has massive catalytic impact in other environments where the same model could potentially be applied. And I think that's what's really valuable about measurement. Mm. I appreciate that. Um, curious, I was just at a presentation from one of your team here in Calgary to an organization just to bring awareness. And Robin shared a number <clears throat> that the, you know, 50 million people enslaved globally, which was up, I believe, from 42 or 43. And I was curious, your view, are we just better at measuring? <laughs> and I want to say that very cautiously. Or is are things still moving in that direction and, and appreciating 
Wow, that feels like we're losing ground. And it's also a number, I think, for many North Americans that kind of puts you back on your heels because this is not a problem where I say slavery to people and they go, well, didn't we abolish that? Like, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, not pointing the ignorant finger, but sometimes you just don't know what you do, what you don't know. When I heard that 50 million number, I just kind of sat there dumbfounded. I actually didn't know even how to process it. Yeah, I mean, so I think it's I think it's both. I mean, I think it reflects that uh, yeah, models are improving, measurements improving. I think we're seeing uh, we're seeing certain situations. Uh, for example, in this in this estimate, the the rate of uh, forced marriage uh, and the estimates around forced marriage as a part of that 50 million uh, was one of the things that that increased, right? And I think that's uh, that's right. I mean, we're seeing so many women around the world uh, in situations of forced marriage, and it's kind of trying to quantify that is is pretty challenging in some environments, right? So we're we're improving in that space. Uh, but uh, secondly, you know, there there have been a lot of really disruptive, uh, difficult events over the past uh, 10 years. Um, including all kinds of displacement, uh, forced migration, um, but also the pandemic uh, over the past years and, and some massive uh, economic up, ups and downs, conflict uh, effects. Uh, these things really are drivers. Um, and uh, truthfully, you know, the world hasn't really uh, invested fully in, uh, in, the, in the appropriate and needed anti-slavery uh, work that, that needs to happen in those places where slavery rates are the highest. Okay, that makes. You touched on something I appreciate before, and I didn't. I, I want to ask this, but is there a gender bias here in that in this fifty million? When I think about forced slavery, is it is it gender neutral that you know if we can exploit someone, we're going to exploit them, or do we don't care about gender? Does this tend to ha lean a little bit more towards women or children or people that are even potentially more vulnerable and not able to protect themselves? Uh, just just curious. Obviously, forced marriage uh, resonates to that from a gender specific, but overall, does this tend to be more unfortunately biased towards, you know, females and then, and or children that are even easier to exploit potentially? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, absolutely right. The more yeah. vulnerable, the more easily to exploit. And so there is a, there is a gender bias there and, uh, and children are, are exploited also at disproportionate rates. I mean, if there's an industry like, for example, fishing, uh, where you need like large, um, adult males uh, to be operating your fishing equipment, then there aren't going to be as many children, right? But, but all things being equal, um, all things being equal in terms of the type of work that's being done, uh, there are going to be children doing it because children are vulnerable. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, this, 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 the sad reality when if you think who's easier to exploit, all other things being equal, then you'll go to the easiest prey, if you will, which is terrible to say out loud, but it's just the, it's the hard facts of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, yourself, curious, any stories that come to mind? And obviously there's probably things you're working on currently that are confidential and you can't speak about, but obviously 18 years, any stories of real success or things that, you know, you, I can't imagine the things you've seen and been exposed to. There's gotta be some stories that are inspirational to you or moved you in a way that, uh, if, if you feel like sharing, and it might be a personal story, any, anything that's relevant, but you live in a world and see things that some of us, most of us don't see or don't even have a clue Part of my mission is to get at least that on the awareness of people that can make a difference, maybe financially. Any stories that come to mind that really land home for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many, but uh, you know, I think um, there's a there's a man in Cambodia who was uh, trafficked onto a Thai fishing boat, um, and uh, and he thought his life was over. I mean, when he you know he took a he took a too good to be true job, uh, thought it would bail his family out of some debt and uh, get them. 
uh, get them on a better plane. And then he ended up on this uh, boat and was on the boat for six years. Uh, thought he'd never, thought he wouldn't make it out alive. His family thought he was dead. Uh, didn't receive a penny that he was promised to be paid. Uh, and uh, and finally uh, jumped off the boat uh, and swam to shore and was picked up by uh, picked up by a, you know police on the uh, on in a government that was or in a country that he didn't even know he was in. Uh, and uh, eventually was ended up in jail and immigration detention and then ended up eventually back in back in Cambodia and, and he got back home only to find out that his son uh, had also been uh, trafficked by the same people who trafficked him uh, and his son was actually also on the boats uh, so so uh, I mean thankfully his son eventually made it back home uh, but I think what uh, what I love about the story is of course that the family had two wonderful reunions with people that they that th thought they had lost. Uh, that the that the father and son both um, decided to share their stories uh, and uh, and participate in the investigation uh, in in the, the trafficking network. Uh, that their trafficking network was in fact uh, shut down, uh, and uh, and over a long period of persistence by our Cambodia team and the Thai team, our Thai team and the government. Uh, involved, uh, that trafficking network was shut down, and people were convicted on both sides of the border. Um, and and those two guys uh, just decided to stay in their home communities and and make the best of it there. And so we were able to connect them with some, uh, you know, uh, livelihood support programs in town, and uh, and they're doing all right. I mean, life's not super easy. It's not all roses, but uh, uh, they've got a little fish farm going, and uh, they're they're making it work with some was uh, cobbling together a patchwork of uh, supports from the so, community. So, so, so critical. Yeah, I hear that story and I hear, you know, was able to escape, was able to go through literally the gauntlet to get back home. Like It's, it's like a movie. It literally is a movie. Uh, movies try to replicate that much emotion, that much intensity. <clears throat> but then the opportunity to then tell somebody about what happened to then stop the cycle. Because, right, it's just, it's happening to somebody in the next village, in the next town, or in the next country, because there's no one there to break that cycle. But if there's no protection, who do you tell? And if you don't trust the law enforcement, why would you tell them? Because they might actually be involved or getting paid off. And that's the crazy cycle that I think as North Americans, aside from movies, we don't, we can't relate to that. I can't relate to it. I've never experienced that in my life. Whenever, whenever something was done, I was affronted in some way. I had some means to deal with it that I didn't feel that I was by going and tr telling a trusted, you know, individual law enforcement, I wasn't going to get, get in prison for even bringing it up. But kind of that, that mindset is so hard to wrap your head around as from a North American perspective, because it's just not what we've grown up. Yeah, with, right? Absolutely. And, and, and you really hit on the critical component, right? I mean, somebody, somebody makes this, first of all, it's a massive uh, initiative just to get out, right? It's self-preservation, but it's courage and it's persistence and it's finding a way and, and then they get back home and the natural reaction is just to let it, just to let it be gone and to forget all about it and not, not talk about it and certainly not stick your neck out again, right? Because you've just, your life has been saved and now what? You're gonna put yourself into some sort of danger, right? So then that missing piece, that missing piece is often that, you know, whoever will be willing to walk with that survivor through that justice system process. Because the truth is the rest of the community doesn't get protected unless that trafficking network goes down, unless the message is that there is a price to be paid for committing this crime of, of human trafficking, right, or of, 
of slavery crime. So if there's a price to be paid, less people will do it. The, the, the trafficking rings will dry up or they'll try to go somewhere else. But that piece of courage to just step up and stick your neck out uh, to stop it is super remarkable. And so what's what we've learned is critical is someone to walk alongside that person uh, and it doesn't have to be IJM, right? I mean, IJM, we, we'll send our teams in to do it, but our partners will be there. Uh, one, of the one of the things we do often in, in countries is, is uh, something we call paralegal trainings, right? Where we'll actually uh, train local community leaders in, in uh, the basics of the criminal justice process so that they can see who the people are who have been, uh, in, in, uh, who've been victims of crime, and then they can kind of know enough about that process to help walk them through it, right, through uh, through those processes that in places like Cambodia are often, uh, you know, not places where uh, you'd, you'd feel supported uh, if you were. Well, the legal system in general, even in North America, although maybe not not as corrupt, certainly not easy to navigate because it's something that most of us don't ever have to deal with. Like it's it's a bit of a foreign process, no matter how you cut it. Let alone a world where it is potentially more corrupt. Again, not pointing fingers, but again, maybe not as trusting. Uh, you can't trust the system as much as you would here. And even our system in North America is convoluted and overburdened, and there's a lot of problems with that as well. Uh, but we're not, we don't feel that there's like the overt corruption that might be involved in some of these other parts of the world. That's, that's just reality. I think all of us can admit that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Corruption, uh, lack of resource, uh, lack of training. Uh, some of the protocols and processes are, you know, uh, just haven't been uh, adequately reviewed or there's not accountability for how they're actually working out, uh, you know, in the, in the far-flung communities with people who have the least uh, protection. So, uh, you know, I think that's, that's the business we're in with our partners is to try to uh, identify those gaps and then shore them up over a period of time. Curious and maybe get into it just a little bit. The funding, the funding model, and obviously this takes this takes money, it takes time, it takes resources, it takes all the things. But ultimately, from a funding perspective, you know, when you go into a region, do you have a set budget? And I don't know how much we want to get into this. I'm just curious. My businessman is like going, okay, well, how do we actually make this physically happen now? Like the reason and the why and the need is huge and obvious. No one can dispute it. But this takes resources, and it takes, and like you said, you're in for potentially a decade or longer. You know, I know that some of the gem success stories are 19 years, 20 years before they get, you know what, I think this this region now can support itself. How does that funding model look and how much is that a factor for you with what can we and can't we do based on just available dollars? For sure, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, we've got uh, limited resources just uh, just like everyone else. And in terms of growth, we can't sustain you know existing operations and then grow in a limitless number of new places all at the same time, right? So. Uh, neither from an operational sort of expansion uh, standpoint, but also, uh, uh, but also resources, right? So we have to look at what's the most critical, what makes the most strategic sense with our existing programs. Uh, and then, you know, we, we budget out what do we think are the, the minimum amount of uh, interventions, the minimum amount of activities uh, that will be required to shift the needle. Uh, and make change, right? And when we're talking about making change, we mean like the number of cases that we'll need to be able to do, uh, the number of individual stories that we'd like to be able to highlight, not just stories of people, but stories of um, types of change that can be documented uh, in the community, numbers of trainings, number of uh, research reports and papers that will influence policy. Uh, and, and so we have to kind of make a real concrete uh, work plan uh, and then budget uh, for the different phases of the project that I had talked to you about earlier. Uh, and then the funding model can look uh, different. So we've got uh, teams of people around the world who are looking for uh, funding partners, right? And so our funding partners will include 
a lot of uh, just individual donors. Uh, it'll also include uh, some uh, foundations uh, or some larger grant-making organizations who are who want to say, hey, we uh, we support this theory of change and we want to invest in this model and in uh, and in documenting it. So so there are some. Uh, larger foundations that are willing to walk with us uh, on, on portions of our journey. So for example, uh, currently we're receiving some funding uh, in, uh, the, in the offices where I work uh, on uh, from uh, US government funding. Uh, some of that flows a, a, a little bit compared to the overall budget. Uh, a little bit comes from US government. Uh, we have had funding from the Walmart Foundation, uh, large, obviously Walmart's a large retailer and, and has uh, had situations of forced labor in its uh, uh, fishing supply chain on uh, some of its products and so uh, felt like it wanted to invest in uh, in the uh, in the jurisdictional model we call it in in trying to clean up or uh, extend worker protection in this jurisdiction that they know is a higher risk jurisdiction so uh, that's a progressive move and really applaud that and appreciate uh, partnering with Walmart Foundation but the lion's share of IJM's support around the world including in our our areas from individual uh, donors mm -hmm who uh, see value in the theory of change and want to be able to partner with us and make a difference. Well, I think so often times with so there, there's so much, there's so many places we can all help. It's finding something that resonates and means something to us. And even my mission to, to hopefully share this message with more of my audience. And uh, I can't get over how many people, when I bring up the concept of slavery, they kind of look at, they look at me a little funny. It's just not something that I think we all know, but we don't really, we don't really know. And, and it's, it's easy to overlook it. And, I am a f I am happy for you know some of the awareness around ESG and supply chain because an organization like Walmart does it and all of a sudden as a consumer I can choose with my wallet which is the ultimate power move that you know you're consuming on a regular basis choose who you buy from makes a difference so I do appreciate that you know for whatever reason big brands do it if it results in in, in changing the original core problem then that's that's fine whatever whatever got you there <laughs> I'm okay with that personally. yeah absolutely and I think what's great about bigger corporations or bigger brands doing it is that they they buy a lot of those uh, bottom line pro those bottom uh, yeah products that are at the bottom of supply chains, right? Or at the, at the sort of uh, level of supply chains, several rungs down where uh, there's less regulation or less scrutiny. Uh, so uh, with larger scale of buying comes more influence on those suppliers, right? And so we really appreciate the, uh, the extra efforts there. Andre, last question. And last question, I promise, kind of, sort of, maybe. <laughs> That's never a last question with me, there's always more. 18 over 18 years with this organization what keeps you fired up because this is this is some he this is some heavy lifting this is some heavy stuff the passion and the and the, the clarity in which you articulate it it comes through but i thought it was worth asking of you know what what is it about this role and about this change that you're contributing to creating in the world that really keeps you fired up and keeps you energized on 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 something like this which i imagine can have some long days and just to be blunt <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, we're, we're, I think everybody's job uh, goes through ups and downs. Uh, I mean, I think, uh, I think the mission is, is exciting. I think it's, it is exciting. It, you know, the reason I started in this mission is because I wanted to be able to make a difference and I wanted to be able to use uh, what I had to, um, to make things better for, for people who uh, were stuck. Uh, and I think, so uh, I'm able to do that, and I'm able to see the reality of it happening, uh, not tangibly with my own hands on a day-to-day -day basis, but I know that my 
my work is, is contributing. So that's so, so valuable. Uh, and I think the other part of it is, you know, working closely with an amazing team of people who are, uh, who are in it together in this community. We have, a, we have an amazing community at IJM of, uh, of people from all over the world, and I'm working with mostly people who are working in their own countries here in Southeast Asia. And, uh, you know, we've, we've grown close over the years, and a lot of us have stayed for a lot of years, and, and just the deep friendships and camaraderie of having gone through the ups and downs and, uh, you know, coming back together on a regular basis, a daily basis, and, uh, you know, looking each other in the eye and and sharing those ups and downs and challenges and, uh, and seeing, uh, seeing things change. Uh, not everything worked well, but uh, going, through, going through those battles and seeing uh, some victories together is uh, a pretty special thing. And so that, that keeps me highly motivated. Um, and, uh, and it's just a pleasure to be part of the story. So I think, uh, I think that's just really rewarding for me over the years to uh, to just have, be able to play my part uh, one day at a time. I don't feel like my role, even though I've been at it for a long time, I don't think it's outsized more than anybody else's, but I, uh, you know, I have a part to play and it's uh, pretty wonderful to be able to do it. Uh, Andre, thank you so much for that. And thanks for coming on the show and just, just your honesty and taking the time and kind of walking me through the story. And the more I learn about this organization, the more, more inspired I become about what's possible. And I think the art of the possible, and it can be pretty discouraging when you see a 50 million number thrown out on a slide in a presentation in a corporate boardroom in Calgary versus understanding and the ability to chat with you being, you know, in the markets where you're making the change and seeing it every day. It's certainly very inspiring for me and hopefully for my audience. And I would really encourage anybody listening, IGM, you know, International Justice Mission, Google it, IGM.ca. Feel free. There's, you have so much information. You guys have such inspiring stories where you've actually had positive impact, but listening to you talk and really understanding how long that journey is sometimes and appreciating that these are not short-term fixes, but they are getting fixed and, and that there's something about that. So show your support, show your dollars, get involved. That's all I can say. And I've got a pretty, I've got a pretty savvy audience. They, they, they know what I'm asking, get out there, make make a difference when, and, and as much as you can share and tell people about this story, because we all can, we all can have our own little impact every day. Uh, Andre, thank you so much. If anyone wants to reach out or get in touch with you with like LinkedIn, or do you have any preferred, you know, sometimes my audience, I know loves gets inspired after an episode and wants to, wants to learn more or get involved even at a, at a closer, you know, boots on the ground level. Uh, LinkedIn, is there any preferred format for people to get in touch with you? LinkedIn is great. Shoot me a message there and, uh, and we'll see where we can take it. Thanks. I love it. Andre, thank you for your time. It was an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you, sir. Thanks so much, Tyler. Much appreciated. It's encouraging speaking to you. Thank you.